So Galatians chapter 5 and verses 1 through 5. Um, so I'm going to start off with a question. How many of you would want to know the will of God for your life? Raise your, raise your hand. I mean, when you ask a Christian, you know, do you want to know the will of God for your life? Do you want to know what God wants you to do? I think everybody in here would say, well, absolutely. We all want to know what God's will is for our life. Now, and I say that because over the last couple of weeks, we've talked a lot about freedom and what true freedom really is. And we learned that to be truly free, we have to replace the desires that are in us, right? As human beings, we have desires uh, to be self-made, right? We have desires that are self-satisfying, to be self-righteous. It's all about us, 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 us. And for us to be uh, truly free... We need to replace those desires that are more in line with Christ and the way he thinks, the way that he sees things. Now, in chapter 4 last week, Paul told us how that happens. He said, my little children, I'm in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. So what happens is, is Christ is formed in us, his ways of seeing things, his ways of thinking, and so on. And, and when that happens, we are changed from the inside out, not from the outside in. And one of the things that changes about us, Paul tells us in Romans 12 too, he says, uh, let God transform you uh, into a new person by changing the way you actually think. You don't think the way you used to think. I mean, how many of y'all can, can say amen to that? That in your life, you just don't think the way you used to think. It is completely um, change. That's what Christ being formed in us does. But watch this. If you look at Romans 12 too, watch what it says. Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So what we see is that when Christ is formed in us, it changes the way we think so that what? So that we can know the will of God for us. Okay. Now, in Romans, we learn something about the will of God. I'm going to kind of go back and review just a bit, little bit. Uh, the will of God actually has a couple of different meanings in the Bible. Okay, And, and I, if, you, if you haven't studied this before, uh, this can really be an eye-opener for you. Because uh, when you really study the Bible and you talk about the will of God, you'll see Scripture refer to the will of God in two ways. The first one is that God has a sovereign will. Um, and, and, and there are many passages in the Bible that describe this. For example, one of the ones that we referred to back in our study of Romans is when Jesus is in the garden praying. You remember on the night he's betrayed, he leaves the Last Supper, and he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he takes his inner circle, uh, he takes Peter, James, and John, and he goes a little bit further into the garden, and he goes ahead to pray. And as he's praying, he says this in Matthew 26, 39. He says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as what? But as you will. In other words, what is God's will? Now, what we know from another scripture uh, in Acts is that what he's talking about, he's talking here about the sovereign plan of God. Remember in Acts, it says this. Truly in this city, Acts 4, 27-28, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, now watch this, to do whatever your hand and your plan had what? 
predestined to take place. In other words, everything that was happening on that night was predestined to happen. Okay, What Pontius Pilate did, what the Gentiles did, what the Roman soldiers did, what Judas did. All of that was in God's plan. So you see here what he's talking about here is God's sovereign will. Everybody with me? Okay. Now, um, now, now, by the way, we can see this. It was the will of God that Jesus would die. It was his plan, his decree. There's scriptures all over the Bible that tell us that. Isaiah 53.10 said it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Uh, 1 Peter 1.20 says this, God chose him as your ransom long before the world began, but he's now revealed him to you in these last days. Um, Revelation said he was slain before the foundation of the world. In other words, it was God's plan for him to die before he ever even created the world. That's amazing to me. In other words, before God created the world, he already knew that Adam and Eve would sin. He already knew that time that he would pick Abraham. He already knew that one day his son would have to come and die. He knew all that would happen before he even created us, before he created the world. And that didn't change his mind. Right? That's his sovereign will. That's, that's mind-blowing, or should be mind-blowing uh, to us. But this is what we call the sovereign will of God. Now, it, it, this is referred to in numerous scriptures in the Bible. Matthew 10, 29, this is Jesus. He said, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from what? Your Father's will. He's saying a, a bird cannot fall out of a tree and die apart from God's will. So everything that happens on this planet is happening in some way in accordance with the sovereign will of God. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. In other words, if you put that in today's English, we say this, a man flips a coin, but whether it comes up heads or tails is God's business. Does everybody see that? I mean, it should, it should astound us, but God is not sitting there twiddling his thumbs, hoping everything works out. He's got everything in control in his sovereign will. Daniel said this, He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. If you go on and read the rest of that verse, it says no one can say to him, why do you do what you do? It's none of, in other words, it's none of your business. Um, Paul says this in Ephesians 1.11, In him, talking about Christ, We've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works. What's that word? All things according to the counsel of his will. So what you see this over and over and over again in the Bible, that the Bible refers to the sovereign will of God, that God is working things out behind the scenes. He's got a plan, and everything is, is, is according to his sovereign will. Now, here's the thing about this sovereign will, though. This sovereign will of God is normally secret. It's not something he tells us. In other words, God's got a plan right now that he's working out in your life, in my life, and in our church's life, in our country's life, and in the world's life. But he don't really tell us about it, does he? This is a sovereign will of God. Uh, it's, so it's normally secret. It's known to God. It's unknown to us. It cannot be disobeyed or broken. Really, listen, it doesn't matter if you believe in the sovereign will of God or not. It's going to happen. Does that make sense? doesn't really matter. He doesn't care whether you believe in it or not. He's just going about his business and, you know, so it doesn't, it's, it's, you cannot break it. It's going to happen. This, this will of God, we do whether we believe in it or not. We're going to do God's sovereign will 
because he's decreed it's going to happen and it's going to happen. Okay, that's his sovereign will. Everybody with me? Okay, now, there's another will of God that's talked about in the Bible and this is God's <coughs> revealed will. Okay, this is what, this is also called his will of command. This is what he tells us to do. <coughs> his re so the sovereign will, God's working out this plan but it's kind of secret, it's behind the scenes, he doesn't really tell us but then he has what's called his revealed will. And this is what he tells us to do. Uh, we have instances, again, all over Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, Paul says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So it's God's will that we keep ourselves holy in regard to uh, sexual immorality or immorality. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Paul says, Give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God. What's the will of God's? What's the will of God for you? Give thanks in all circumstances. Good, bad, be thankful. Okay? So there are places in the scripture where God just comes out and says, this is what I want you to do. Everybody with me? That's his revealed will. Okay? Or he may tell you through the Holy Spirit, like he told Paul, go into this country or don't go into this country. But it's where he just comes right out and says, this is what I want you to do. This is his revealed will. Now, I want you to notice something, though, about his revealed will. It can be obeyed or disobeyed, just like those two scriptures right there. Do we all agree this is his will for us? Can we obey it and disobey it? Sure we can. We can make, every one of us can make a choice. I will obey this or I will disobey it. So what we find out about his revealed will is that it can be obeyed or disobeyed. In Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the ones who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, there's going to be some enter the kingdom of heaven and some don't. What's the difference? Some do the will of God and some don't. So the will of God, the revealed will of God, can be broken or disobeyed. Everybody with me? Okay. Um, so again, we can conclude from those passages and many others that in the Bible there are two ways of talking about the will of God. One we call the sovereign will, and the other we call God's revealed will. Both of them are true, and both of them are important to understand and believe in. So, just real quick, sovereign will, it's mostly hidden to us. The revealed will of God is known to us. The sovereign will cannot be disobeyed. It's going to happen. God has decreed it. His revealed will can be disobeyed. His sovereign will always comes to pass. The revealed will doesn't always come to pass. His sovereign will cannot be broken. His revealed will can be broken and in fact is broken every single day. Everybody see the difference between those two? Now, let's go back to that scripture. Paul says, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know what? God's will. Now, here's my question. What's he referring to there? Is he referring to God's sovereign will or is he referring to God's revealed will? He, absolutely, he's referring to God's <coughs> revealed will. He's not saying, hey, let God change the way you think so you can find out the secret will of God. That makes no sense, right? What he's saying is, let God transform you, let him change the way you think so that you can not, you can't, you don't just read God's will on a page of the Bible, but now you actually are changed so that you understand it and you want to do it. In other words, let him change the way you think so that you desire to do what he wants you to do. 
Okay, it's not about me anymore. It's not about self. It's about something else. That's what he's going to change. So this has, that scripture has nothing to do with his sovereign will. It has everything to do with understanding his revealed will and desiring to do his uh, revealed will. Now, I go through all that because I started today's question, uh, lesson by asking you a question. Do you want to know the will of God for your life? And everybody said... Okay, so the reason I did that is because the first verse in today's passage gives you God's will for your life, is another revealed will. Galatians 5.1 says this, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Okay, does everybody see? This is God's will for you and for me. Now, you can choose to obey it or you can choose to disobey it. But this is God's will. Stand firm in your freedom and do not go back to slavery. Okay? You see, sometimes I see Christians get so bogged down in undecision about God's will. It seems like we go through life and we worry, should I buy the car? Should I move to this city? Should I go to this school? Should I marry this person? Should I take this job? Should I invest in this account? We are so worried about the everyday little decisions. And, and by the way, I'm not saying those aren't important. Okay, But if you really want to know God's will for your life, shouldn't you start first and foremost with the things God tells you to do? Right. Shouldn't that be where you start? Again, I'm not saying those other decisions aren't important, but I'm saying what's, I can guarantee you, if it was important enough to God to say do this, then it must be important. If he took the time to say, I want this for your life, and he inscribed it on scripture, wouldn't you think that's pretty important? But yet we spend all of our time worried about the little things, right? I mean, we really do. And we, we don't worry about, we tend to just, I don't say ignore, but we don't spend near the amount of time and investment. In fact, let me ask you this question. Well, let me, let me put this up here first. So again, here's the revealed will of God for us. It is for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So if you, do you want to know what God's will is for your life? His will is that you enjoy freedom. Okay? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to give you a, a perspective of this today that I don't think many of us have ever seen before. I know I haven't really thought about it this way until I went through this lesson. Your enjoyment of freedom is much more important to God than many of those day-to-day -day decisions that you spend so much time uh, worrying about. In fact, let me ask you this. If, and don't answer this question, but are you as concerned about the command to enjoy your freedom as you are about other things in your life? Put it this way. Do you exercise as much diligence in prayer and study to stand fast in freedom as you do to decide about home, job, school, marriage, part? Do you? My guess is probably not. We don't spend much time thinking, Lord, help me to stand fast in freedom. No, we're praying, Lord, help me decide what to do about this thing. But yet here's this will of God just clear and concise as it can be. Stand fast in your freedom. Don't go back to, to, to bondage. So again, this is the will of God for us, revealed in, in a clear and unqualified command. It's uncompromising, unrelenting, unchanging freedom. That's what the lesson today is all about. 
Okay, the, the rest of the passage, verses 1 through 5, is just explanation and incentive to obey his will. So let's read verses 2 and 3. So Paul comes in, he says, hey, here's the will of God for you. Stand firm in your freedom. Do not submit again to a yoke of bondage. Now look at what he says in verse 2 through 3. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Now, I want to stop here for just one second, and I want to show you, and I'm not saying anybody would do this, but I want to show you how easy it is to take things out of context. Um, let, let's say someone was in our class today for the first time, and they haven't been in Galatians. I don't know how many, how many Sundays we've been studying Galatians, about three or four months. And, um, and they were unfamiliar with all that we've talked about. And I just came in and I read those two verses. And I asked that person, I said, okay, what do you think those verses mean? And that person may say, well, that's, that's easy. Paul says circumcision is wrong and it displeases God. Therefore, non-circumcision is right and that's what we should do. Nobody should be, no, no man should be circumcised. Okay? Now, would that be a correct reading of that verse? Of, of course it not. Whether to be circumcised or not circumcised, that, that's not the point of that passage at all. Right? We, we understand that because we've been here. The point of verses 2 and 3 is not that circumcision is wrong and that uncircumcision is right. The point of that verse is that any act we perform in order to bribe God for His blessing is wrong. Anything you do to bribe God and say, look, I did this, you owe me. Anything you do in that sense where you're trying to bribe God, you're trying to gain favor with God, that's what's wrong. Circumcision just happened to be the requirement of the Judaizers. They were telling the Galatians, you need to be circumcised to be true Christians. That just, be ha that just happened to be the act that they wanted. But Paul is saying, you shouldn't let anyone bewitch you into thinking that circumcision or uncircumcision or any other outward act of obedience can be offered to God as some kind of benefit to him and he turns around and owes you wages. That's, that's, everybody with me? That's the point of the scripture. It's not about circumcision or uncircumcision. It's about the... In fact, here's what we find out. What it's really about is the motive or intent behind what you do. It's not about the act itself. It's about the motive. Okay. Now, in fact, I'm going to show you something. I'm going to look at two situations in Paul's life where he does the opposite things. And in fact, they're so opposite that Paul almost seems to be inconsistent in what he did. So let's, let's, now one of these we've already seen. You remember early in the book, in Galatians 2, where Paul talks about taking Titus up to Jerusalem. Let's read that, Galatians 2, 3 through 5. It says this, Paul, remember, Paul goes up to Jerusalem to meet with Peter and James. And he says this, and they, talking about Peter and James, supported me and did not even demand that my companion Titus be circumcised, though he was a Gentile. Even that question came up only because of some so-called believers there, false ones really, who were secretly brought in. They sneaked in to spy on us and take away the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their Jewish regulations, but we refused to give in to them for a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel of the message for you. So remember, Titus is a Gentile, a Greek, right? 
And Paul goes to Jerusalem and he takes Titus. And Titus hasn't been circumcised. And Paul says he goes up there. And Peter and James, they didn't make any big deal about it. Says that's fine. But there were some false believers who were said, hey, you've got to circumcise him for him to be a true Christian. And Paul, did Paul give in? Paul said, absolutely uh, not. In fact, Paul, look what Paul says. We refused to give in because we wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel for you. So Paul absolutely refuses to let Titus be circumcised. Why? Because he said the truth of the gospel was at stake. You see, those false believers insisted that Titus be circumcised in order to be truly made right with God. And Paul said to submit to that would be tantamount to abandoning the gospel of justification by faith, right? Paul said this is a big deal. There is no way I'm circumcising him because if I do that, we're giving in to works. And he's saved by faith and faith alone. It's got nothing to do with whether he's circumcised. Everybody with me? Y'all remember reading all that? Now, what if I told you there was another time in Paul's life where he took a young man who was a Greek and he had him circumcised because of the Jews? But if I told you that, would you say Paul was a hypocrite? Because that's exactly what Paul did. We find this in Acts 16, 1 through 3. It says this, Paul went first to Derbe and then the Lystra where there was a young disciple named Timothy. Now his mother was a Jewish believer, but his father was a Greek. And Timothy was well thought of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium. So Paul wanted him to join them on their journey. In deference to the Jews of the area, he arranged for Timothy to be circumcised before they left, for everyone knew that his father was a Greek. Now that is, you're like, wait a minute now, Paul. You just said that if I circumcised him, I'm giving in to the, the I'm, I'm basically abandoning the doctrine of justification by faith, right? But he turns right around here, pretty much the same type of situation, and he has Timothy circumcised. Okay, now, there's a real lesson here for us. A real lesson here for us. I want you to really pay attention to this. Okay, so the question is, is Paul a hypocrite? Well, I'm here to tell you, Paul, no, Paul's not a hypocrite at all. And I'm going to show you why he did what he did. I want to give you at least two differences in the situation that Paul encountered so you can make your own decision. Number one, when he took Titus up to Jerusalem, the people who were resisting him were false brothers, right? Remember that? They came in... The pressure to be circumcised, to circumcise Titus was from believers, from the inner circle, from inside the church. The pressure was coming up, and, and, and it, they were basically putting pressure upon another believer to perform a work of the law in order to be accepted, right? And Paul says, I'm not going to do that. But the Jews in Lystra, where Timothy was, they weren't Christians. In fact, Notice in that passage it says Timothy was well spoken of by all the brethren, right? All the Christians accepted Timothy. They loved him. They didn't care if he was circumcised or not. No, there were no Christians. There were no believers. There was nobody from inside the church um, pressing for Timothy to be circumcised. Rather, in fact, it was because of the Jews in those places. In the book of Acts, um, I forget how many times, oh, 85 times the, the word Jews is used in the book of Acts, and it always refers to unbelievers. It's not, it never refers to, when it says, when he calls, if there's Jews that are Christians, he calls them brothers. 
If the Jews are not Christians, he calls them Jews. Okay? So what, so what he was doing is he was sim, uh, circumcising Timothy in deference to unbelieving Jews. So here's the deal. Titus, remember, Titus goes to Jerusalem. The pressure's coming from inside the church, right? Even though they're false believers, Paul says, no way we're doing that. No way. But here, Timothy's circumcision is not motivated by Christian pressure from within, but by, by a missionary strategy from without. In other words, Paul is going to take Timothy into a town and he wants to preach to unbelieving Jews. And he says they'll hear the message better if Timothy's circumcised. <coughs> is everybody with me? Do you see the difference there? Okay. okay, here's another one. Paul's trip to Jerusalem was a one-time thing. You remember he took he's been preaching to the Gentiles. They're all getting saved. And Titus is an example of a Gentile who's been saved. So he takes him up to Jerusalem. It's a one-time trip. And he's saying, look, here's a man that's been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's a Gentile. Right? But see, Timothy was going to be a constant travel companion with Paul. He was going to go from town to town to town, to city to city to city. So what, what was at stake for him and Timothy was how unbelieving Jews might be best won to Christ. Okay? Think about it this way. If um, maybe you're a lady and you, you think wearing a, a head covering, it, it, does it matter if you wear a head covering or not? Does it have anything to do with being saved? Or no. But let me ask you, if you went into a country to minister to women and they all wore head coverings, what would you do? Wear a head covering. That's exactly what Paul was doing. He said, I'm going to go minister to Jews and they'll listen to me better if Timothy's circumcised. So he was motivated, had nothing to do with the gospel. It was motivated by what can I do to best reach the Jews so they'll listen to the gospel. See, in the end, it's all about your motive intent. Now watch this. In one situation, Christian freedom caused Paul to resist the circumcision of Titus in order to preserve the truth of the gospel. But in the other, the same freedom allowed him to remove the stumbling block of Timothy's lack of circumcision in order to reach unbelieving Jews. See, Christian freedom says one time this might be wrong and another time it may be absolute. It's not. A, can you imagine if Paul said, do you understand how Paul could have said circumcision is wrong? Don't ever get circumcised. Everybody with me? Do you understand if he would have laid that down as a law? That's exactly what it done. It became a law. Everybody with me? See, he, he, it's not about that. It's about your heart. It's about the motive and in the intent of what you're doing. You, you can make circumcision a bad thing. You can make uncircumcision a bad thing. You can make a head covering a bad thing. You can make it a good thing. It's not about that. Now, obviously, there's some things like adultery. or things. You can never make anything good out of those. But a lot of things, it's all about the motive of the heart. See, one time Paul says, I'm not going to do that. Next time he does it. It was a different situation that called for a different thing. But it was about the freedom that he had to do different. Didn't make him a, everybody with me? It's a, that's an incredibly um, enlightening uh, piece of scripture. So you can see from those two verses that what Paul means today's passage in Galatians 5, 2 through 3 is, is it's your motive behind accepting circumcision that makes the difference. In other words, he's saying this, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision as a means of justification, Christ will be of no advantage to you. 
I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision as a, and he's talking about as a means of being made right with God. Hey, if you want to be circumcised because it'll help you uh, preach to the Jews better, go ahead, Paul says. I got no problem with that. But if you're trying to do it as an act of obedience where God owes you something, Paul says, if you do that, Christ is of no advantage to you. You've walked away from grace. See, it's your motive. What are you doing that thing for? Pastor Henry said, I was thinking about this, I was studying this this week. Pastor Henry made a, a, an example Wednesday night if you were here. We were talking about encouraging people. And do you know, I can go up to Debbie and I can give her a compliment, right? And, and I can encourage her with a compliment. But did you know that the Bible says that flattery is a sin? Now tell me, what's the difference between flattery and encouragement? What's the difference? See, flattery is I'm complimenting her so I can get something. So she'll think better of me. Maybe I can gain a little advantage. Maybe I'm trying to, you know, maybe me and Erwin are vying for something and I'm over here playing up to her because I want her to like me better than him. See, that's all a sin. But I could say the exact same thing to her with a different motive, and it's not sin at all. It's encouragement. Does everybody see that? Yeah. It's, got, it's not what you do. It's the motive of why you're doing it. That's what Paul keeps coming back to over and over again. It's not a, See, the Jews said, you're circumcised. It had nothing to do with the motive to them. It was just about following the law. They, they never looked deeper to see what's the, what's the intent behind what we're doing. See, you and I, it's not about the law. It's about the intent of our hearts. So one day we can do one thing. I can flatter somebody and it's a sin. The next day, my, my, maybe God does something in my heart and I, I flatter that same person, but this time it's not a sin because I'm trying to encourage them. Does that make... I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge thing for, for Christians. Now, I want to bring up one more thing. I told you I wanted to try to bring up something today that I want you to think about something in a different way. And I, and I saw this in verse 3. I want to read this in two, uh, two passages here, or two uh, translations. In the ESV it says this, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision as a means of being made right with God, right? That he is obligated to keep the whole law. The King James uses the word debtor. He says, for I testify again to every man that circumcised that he is a debtor to the whole law. Now, what I want you to see here is Paul, is, remember verse 1 said what? Stand fast in freedom. So see, Paul's saying, don't be a debtor. Be free. Everybody see that? What he's doing, he's contrasting freedom with obligation or indebtedness. In other words, the mindset of slavery is the mindset of a debtor. <coughs> that you owe some, somebody something. Specifically, that you owe God something. Okay. Now, I bring this up because I saw something this week that just really helped me, and that's this. God does not want to deal with us as debtors. That is not the relationship He wants to have with you and I. Okay? Are you with me? Now, I bring this up because there's something we do as Christians that probably every one of us here is guilty of, and that's what I call the gratitude ethic. Okay? Let me ask you this. How many people have ever said something like this? God has done so much for me that I'm going to devote my life to paying Him back. I know I can never pay Him back. 
but I'm going to do everything I can to pay him back as much as... How many of you ever said or thought something like that? Right? I mean, we all do. It's like, man, I know it was free. I know, but now, man, I, I just need to work for God. I need to be holy for God. <laughs> right? See, and by the way, I understand that most Christians who say that, they understand we're not justified by works. I get that. That's not what you mean when you say that. But you do have this idea of in some way, I need to pay God back for what all he's done for me. And by the way, I call it the gratitude ethic because you are grateful. Everybody with me? You're doing it out of gratefulness. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work for God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay him back as much as I can with my life. Now, here's the problem with that. Because when you start working for God because he's given you so much, even out of gratitude, it's really easy to start thinking of God's gift as a loan that needs to be paid back in some way. Okay. In other words, what it does, it puts you in position of a debtor instead of a child. Okay. And by the way, that leads to slavery because you can never be truly free if you're burdened with a debt to be repaid. Think about it this way. Think about a child. I, I, my mom and dad, you know, they're my mom and dad. I can tell you I have never in my life had a relationship with them where I think about paying them back. I don't know if any, does anybody, I don't know if any kid does, but I never have a relationship with them where it's about, man, I got to pay them back. They're my parents. They invested a lot in me. I'm investing in my children, but I don't want my children to grow. My children, I don't want them to grow up thinking, man, I got to pay my dad back. D does anybody? See, a parent-child relationship is never a, a, a relationship of, of indebtedness. Well, that's what God wants to have with us. He doesn't want you going through life thinking, man, I owe him. He just wants you to enjoy being free, enjoy being his child. Does everybody see that? Can you imagine if we just went through life and we're just... We're like children. We're just free. You know, our, you know, our little granddaughter, we watch her, and you're doing, man, every day you're doing for her, doing, 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 watching her every move. It never crosses her mind that she owes you anything. Right? It never, that's what God wants from us. He wants us to be completely free. Just to live our life, to enjoy freedom. Yes, he's changing us from the inside. Yes, we're doing things, but it's not out of being indebted. He doesn't want us to have that mindset of indebtedness. He wants us to have the mindset of a parent and child. Does that make sense? Then that's difficult, by the way. Right? Because us, again, we were raised up, I've said it before, in this society where it's all about performance. You perform, you do good, and your parents give you gifts, and they give you... Your, your teachers give you A's, right? Your boss gives you raises. God says, I don't, I, that's, that's the world. That's not the way it is over here. This is a parent-child relationship. There's no indebtedness here. Of course, you know, if I go back here, yes, our entire debt has been paid in full but, by Christ. We understand that, but God does not want us to relate to him as debtors, even out of gratitude, okay? Just be free and relate to him as, as his children. Now, verse 4 says the same thing as verses 2 through 3, warning us to stand fast in freedom and not submit to a yoke of slavery. Verse 4 said this, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Listen, the experience of freedom can only be enjoyed through grace 
right? It, it cannot be enjoyed through works. That's why God does not want us to fall into that indebtedness mindset, right? He wants us to be free. And the key to freedom is every single day depend on grace, which means depend on Him, okay? I, I got an example here. By the way, people say, how do you do that? Here's the best example I can come up with. When you tell a child to pick up their toys and put them away, and we've all been in this situation, you got a, you got a, a son or a daughter or a grandchild or whatever, and you tell them to pick up and put their toys away, there are really two things that can happen. The first one is you leave them on their own and you threaten punishment. I saw a guy yesterday and he was telling me about his granddaughter and she made a mess and he got the vacuum cleaner and he told her she had to clean it up. And he took a picture of her and her lip was hanging down about this far, <laughs> right? And she did it. I said, well, did she do it? He said, oh, yeah, she did it. But the whole time, her lip was dragging the floor. She kept tripping over it. And see, and in that case, the work gets done. But is the child free? No. The child's not free at all. Even as they're doing what you ask them to do, they're going about the work like there's a yoke of slavery. They don't want to do it. They're doing it because they've been made to do it. So there's this weight on them that irritates them and discourages them, right? Okay? Now... The second thing you can do as a parent or grandparent is you can make a game out of it. And we've probably all done this, right? You say, well, let me get down there and help you. Let's see who can do it the fastest. Well, all of a sudden, the kid's doing the work, right? And they're having, guess what they're doing? They're having a blast. They're getting the work done. It's not oppressive. It's not discouraging. It's even enjoyable. Why? Because dad or mom gets down on the floor and helps them, right? Okay, now here's the deal. You see, by the way, the same work has to be done. But in one case, it's being done under the yoke of slavery. In the other case, it's done under freedom. The key to freedom is whether we have to do the work ourselves to escape punishment or whether our Father comes down and gets on the floor with us and helps us. You see, that's grace. God getting on the floor and helping us pick up the toys. That's what God does. Through His Spirit. See, it's not a punishment thing where we're sitting. He says, the Holy Spirit says, let me come in here and help you. Let me enable you. Let me, let me make it joyful. Let's make this thing fun. Let, let me put some desires in you to do what, what I need you to do. Oh, that changes everything. See, with grace, it becomes about a life of obedience becomes a life of joy. It's what you want to do. It's not, a, it's not slavery anymore. Finally, Paul says this in verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await the hope of righteousness. Now, I want to, one thing I want to point out about this, even though there is a sense, by the way, if you're a Christian, everyone in this room is, is already righteous. God sees you as righteous. Okay? The Bible says that we are, in a sense, already seated at the right hand of God. We're already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. In other words, He sees us the way it's going to be. God can do that. So what we're doing here on this earth is we're trying to become in practice what we already are in reality, right? We're, we're trying to become in practice what, how God already sees us. That, that's what this life is all about. So there's coming, a, a, even though there is a sense in which we're already justified by faith in Christ, we're already clothed with His righteousness, the fact is there is a final judgment coming. We are all going to stand before the judgment seat of God, and on that day, He's going to say, righteous, come on in. 
you are completely righteous because of my son. And by the way, at that point, you will be made fully and ethically, perfectly righteous for all of eternity. Right? No more sin, no more shame, no more regret, no more of any of that stuff. That's, by the way, Paul says we wait for the hope of righteousness. That's what he's saying. I'm waiting for that day where he just finally and says righteous for eternity. Paul says that's what I'm, I'm waiting for. But what I want you to do is I want you to watch this. Have you ever thought about the fact that other religious people are hoping for the same thing? That whether they're a Muslim or a Buddhist or a uh, whatever, you know, whatever uh, Catholic or Protestant or what, you know, there's a lot of people waiting that saying one day God's going to say I'm righteous. But they're waiting. The question is, how are you waiting? Are you waiting as free men, or are you waiting and women, or waiting as slaves? There's a lot of people out there think one day God's going to let them in and say they're righteous because why? Because they've done all the works. They've gone to Mass. They've said the rosary. They've done all those things. God's going to let me in. They're waiting for the same thing we're waiting. See, the point is, though, is they're actually waiting as slaves. They're slaves to the things they have to do, right? Paul, Paul says don't want us, he doesn't want us waiting as slaves. He wants us waiting as free men and free women. Now, there's two phrases in that verse that shows us how to wait. Number one, it says, for through the Spirit. I, our lives began by a work of the Spirit, and our lives go on by a work of the Spirit. We're free because God has sent the Spirit of His Son to come help us put the toys away. Let me say that again, because I like it when I wrote it. We're free because God has sent the Spirit of His Son to come help us put the toys away. We're not left to do it on our own. So the fact is, He offers His fellowship and help and even makes the life of obedience a life of joy. The Christian life is a life of freedom because it's lived in the power of the Spirit. It's lived because Daddy and Mom are helping us live the life every single day, making a game out of it, per se, right? What's the other thing he says? For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Just as a little child would never reject their daddy's help, a child of God can never opt for legalism over grace or slavery over freedom. This is where our faith comes in. If we rely on our Father to help us, He will help us. And by the way, make note of this. Notice it says, by faith we wait. Faith isn't something you do one time 20 years ago when you walked down an aisle and accepted Jesus Christ. It's not a one-time deal. By faith, we wait. It's an ongoing thing. It's an everyday thing, every hour, every minute. It's an ongoing way of waiting. In the end, the coin of freedom has two sides. On one side of the coin is the sovereign grace of God working in us and for us day by day. This is, this is Daddy coming down on the floor and turning obedience into a life of joy. The other side of the coin is our faith, a life of joyful reliance on what God does for us, not what we can do for God. By the way, this is a life that is distinctively different from the world because next week we're going to see this is a life that frees you up to love. Somebody got your Bible open there. Read me verse 6. What does verse 6 say? Exactly. For in Christ Jesus, it's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision that has any value. The only thing that matters to God is faith expressing itself 
through love. And that's what we're going to see next week. What matters? The Bible, in fact, Paul will tell us next week, the whole law, the whole law is fulfilled in one sentence. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law. Do you understand how that works? you understand why one sign Paul can say, should I circumcise or uncircumcise? What's best for, for my neighbors? Not circumcise. On another one, it says, circumcise or uncircumcise? What's best for my neighbors, the Jews who don't believe? Circumcise. You understand that? One day I can flatter, and it's, can I flatter this person if it's best for them? Yes, I can. Everybody with me? It's all about the motive, and the emotive has to be driven by love. That is the life of a, of a Christian. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beginning of Galatians 5. It's a, a verse.